love for you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the last part of this chapter, the burial of God's Son. The burial of God's Son. I know as a child I had lots of woods and acreage to play over, and we would bury things as kind of a treasure hunt kind of mindset. And inevitably, we would forget where we buried it. We might mark it with something, uh, usually a stick or something in the ground, stuck in the ground, and eventually the wind and the rain would make that stick kind of fall over and you'd forget, well, was it here? Was it there? Uh, we even tried, you know, two paces from this tree or five paces from that rock or whatever. But, you know, tombstones serve the same purpose, to mark where something amazing or something uh, monumental happened. God wanted us to know exactly where they buried Jesus Christ. He wanted to know that, us to know that he was buried so that we could remember his death and ultimately his resurrection. So of all that Jesus did on, on planet earth while he was here, his burial is a, accounted for in all four gospels, but it's a very small paragraph about it. Little different nuances here and there, but it's very important to the whole story. So let me read Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47, and we'll break it down. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him, whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he bought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. Let's pray. Father, we... We appreciate why you would have your writers write down this account because we know that you wanted us to know that your son was buried and that you took very deliberate care in burying him. You wanted to make sure the spot where the resurrection happens was found. May we find some truth in, in this passage for our own hearts today as we look at it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So after the cross, we talked about last week, Jesus breathes his last. He says it is finished in John. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit in Luke. After the cross, God orchestrates a burial. He orchestrates a very obvious burial that completely validates the son's death, his son's death. God buries Jesus in such a way, in such a way that, that no one really is able to dispute it. Now, hopefully I can show you that today. They cannot dispute the death of Jesus Christ. They can't dispute the burial of Jesus Christ and ultimately not the resurrection, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. So what did God do to make Jesus' burial support the salvation that comes from Christ? Well, in the record of Jesus' burial, in all four accounts, we see three strategies that establish the death, the burial, and in turn the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three strategies. First of all, we see that prominent Jewish men bury him. Let me read those verses to you again. Mark 15, 42 through 43. 
and then 46 through 47, these prominent men will be explained here shortly. When it was already evening because of the day, it was the day of the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Skip down to 46. After he bought some cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb cut out of the rock and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. So that's Mark's account of what went on after the crucifixion, after Jesus was dead. He breathed his last. It is finished. God has now received his spirit in, into his hands. Thank you, Ladybug. Now what? Now what? Well, it, in evening, before the Sabbath, they wanted to get the bodies off the cross. This was a Jewish thing, okay? And I'll explain more in a minute. But the corpses must come down. But how? Well, so a prominent man of the Sanhedrin. Now, if you remember from the trials, the, the three religious trials and the three civilian trials that God, Jesus had, the Sanhedrin was the group that was together accusing him of blasphemy. They met three different times, once in the daylight just to check the box that it was legal. But this, this Sanhedrin is the ruling council of the Jewish religion. Joseph of Arimathea is a prominent man on that council. Now, Arimathea, you may not know where that is. I don't really know where it is. They think it's where Samuel, the prophet in the Old Testament, was born. And it went by another name back then. This is the only place in the, in the accounts in the gospel you'll find Arimathea. But Joseph was a prominent man from that town. And he went to Pilate and he requested Jesus' body. That what? A man of the Sanhedrin requests Jesus' body. It's unexpected at best. It's, it's completely scary. At, at, what's he going to do with Jesus' body? The Sanhedrin condemned him to this. The Sanhedrin put him on that cross. The Sanhedrin created these false charges. What is a man from the Sanhedrin going to do with Jesus? Is he going to hide his body so nobody can find him and, and honor him? Is he going to incinerate it, get rid of the body, get rid of the evidence? What is this man going to do? Because they didn't know Joseph. He's unknown to the disciples. He's unknown to the women that followed Jesus. He's unknown till this very passage. Could he legally do this? Well, not really. Not really. Here's the normal process for a body that's been hanging on a cross. Normally, the Romans let them hang there and rot, completely decompose till they fall off the cross. That's their normal operation. I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's normally what they do. However, in the Jewish area, the Palestine area, the Jews would not put up with that. And so to keep the peace, the second way was, was, to, was to take the body down. Now, if the person wasn't crucified for like high treason, maybe the Roman prefect would release that body to um, a family member or someone. But it had to be a male family member to come ask for that body. Mary couldn't do it because women weren't respected back then. She was there, but she couldn't have done this. And the third way is if they take this body down before it decomposes and there's no family member requesting it, they just toss it in a common grave. It may be an individual grave, but it's probably shallow. Or it may be a pile where they just pour dirt on them eventually. So that's kind of the normal operation for a crucified man on a cross. 
But Mark records what Joseph did as an act of boldness. He went to Pilate. Why is that an act of boldness? I mean, he was part of the conspiracy, wasn't he? He was part of the council. Well, no, he really wasn't. He was part of the council, but he was not part of the conspiracy. See, Pilate crucified Jesus because Jesus claimed to be a king. At least that's what Pilate heard. That's not what Jesus did, but that's, what the, that's the reason. The Sanhedrin had accused him of blasphemy, but that's not hap- that didn't happen either. So Joseph goes to Pilate, and he risked a lot asking for Jesus' body. Because asking for Jesus' body to bury it, that might actually, that might actually insinuate that he's uh, on Jesus' side. He risked his reputation. He risked his position. He risked all of his, his, uh, his uh, prestige as a member of the council. He was doing it, though, for the right reason. And we know that. I mean, you've read the story, but I'm, just, I'm playing up the part where he is, he is risking a lot. Maybe even risking his life for taking down and burying a blasphemer. I mean, the Sanhedrin could have had that reaction. They would have been within their rights. But the cool thing about Joseph is he was waiting. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, Matthew and, uh, Matthew and um, John, Matthew and John, they call him a disciple. They call him Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent rich man. They call him a disciple of Christ. But up to this point, we hadn't heard. His, his devotion to Jesus Christ was secret. His devotion was undisclosed. It was hidden for a time. And, and he had rejected the council's decision to crucify him. And he's not, but he's not recorded as speaking up, you know, like trying to voice his opinion about it. And, and I think it's because he would have never been heard. <laughs> In that chaos of those three trials, everybody yelling at Jesus to crucify him and yelling at him as a blasphemer and slapping him and spitting on him and all the stuff they were doing to Jesus in Caiaphas' house, there's Joseph of Arimathea standing probably back on the edge trying not to get in the fray. If he'd have said, hey, we shouldn't crucify him, he would have never been hurt over all of that. So he kept quiet. At least it's not recorded that he said anything, but he was not approving in it. But I don't think they took a vote. There's nothing recorded about them voting whether to crucify Jesus or not. It was like, it was like a mob, and they were going to get their, ju- their form of justice. But another man shows up in John's account. If you've got a, got a thumb in, in Mark, flip over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. There's another prominent man that shows up for Jesus' burial starting with verse 38 of John chapter 19. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission. So he came, took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and alloys. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen clothes with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Nicodemus, 
Remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3? Comes to Jesus by night, asking him all kinds of questions. We get that, that famous verse, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And eventually it leads to the, the most favorite and most well-known verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So Nicodemus became another follower of Jesus, implanted in the Sanhedrin. He was there. He was part of the group. Maybe him and Joseph didn't even know each other. We're like, okay, I'm for Jesus. Are you for Jesus? They probably never even exchanged that. They may have never known. Now, Jewish burial custom. Let's go through that a little bit. Okay, so by sunset, this is a requirement in the Jewish law, not just their traditions. By sunset, they were to take the bodies down from the cross or wherever. You were never to leave a body hanging in a tree on a cross till after sunset. Every body had to be taken down and buried before sunset. And so then they take and they put this body in a tomb for it to decompose. So they put the spices and the aloes and the myrrh around it to keep it from smelling so bad in this tomb that's probably in a kind of a public garden or public place. And then after about a year, they go back in and they gather the bones and they put it in a box called an ossuary. And they, they put that in like maybe a mausoleum or something special. So that's kind of the Jewish burial custom. Well, Nick brought the, the spices, 75 pounds of them and the myrrh and the alloys to wrap Jesus in because he was looking to do the right thing too. Both of these men risked a lot of earthly, worldly treasures, of position, prestige, and reputation. They were risking it all by doing this. Most likely, neither of them remained in the Sanhedrin after this. Probably they just left it because there was no need for it after the resurrection. After the resurrection, the temple worship was gone. Remember the veil was torn in two at Jesus' death? Now they stuck, the Sanhedrin stuck around, of course, and we see when Peter, James, John, and all them meet up with the Sanhedrin and get accused, and that's the whole book of Acts, and that's another whole sermon. But with the help of soldiers and the help of his servants, Joseph and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus Christ down and buried it in accordance with the customs of Jewish law. And they laid it in a tomb cut from the rock, Basically, a, a man-made cave. More than likely, it had benches in it cut out of the rock so that they could lay the body, so they could put several bodies in there at a time. And, and it wouldn't be limited to just one. But this was a brand new tomb. It had never been used. It was a virgin tomb. Kind of an interesting thing, right? Seems appropriate for God incarnate, Emmanuel, to be, born, be laid in a virgin tomb, right? So they put Jesus' body to rest because they loved Jesus. They cared for him. They were secretly following him. They cared for his family, and they knew it was the right thing to do. You know, and God put them in the prominent positions they, they were in. Sometimes we get a little big in our head thinking we earned or we garnered this place where we are, whatever prestige we have in this world. But God put these two men in the Sanhedrin at this moment. And they did it because they were obeying God's calling, but it also fulfilled a prophecy, a prophecy that, that has, was read by the, the Jews all the time in Isaiah 53. And it could only happen this way. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and he was with a dead, a rich man at his death. They made his grave with the wicked, which would be the two thieves on the side, and he was with a rich man at his in his death. 
See, he died with wicked men beside him. But a rich man, Joseph, came and took him and cared for him and buried him. Now, why in the world would we need a formal burial? That's kind of one question that kind of I kept wrestling with. Why didn't God just let him be thrown in some common grave and raise him from there? He could, right? I mean, we don't doubt that, right? <laughs> Hopefully you don't doubt that. So why a formal burial? Well, it really was, one, to fulfill all of God's prophecies about Jesus Christ, and two, to dispel all the debate about it. See, what most people don't realize is all the debate about whether Jesus Christ lived and died and rose and was buried and rose is gone. The people who still think that it's a lie or a myth are people that aren't looking at the evidence. And you can read several books, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. You can read Josh McDowell's books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It is real. Joseph, Josephus, the historian of the Jews, during this period, eventually is convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. He writes it in his historical records. So Jesus did, I mean, God did this to dispel all the future debate. Some, some of them would have disputed that Jesus actually died if they hadn't buried him. Well, maybe, maybe we threw him in the common grave and he crawled off somewhere. Maybe he really was. And that's the swoon theory. If you hear that one out there, the swoon theory, that Jesus just fainted on the cross and they thought he was dead. We'll get to how they knew he was dead in a minute. Also, if they didn't have a definite burial and a definite tomb to put him in, then Jesus' body could have been considered lost or stolen. And we just said he rose from the dead, which kind of was the story that Matthew talks about when the guards are, are... Well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So these two very, very important men, prominent men, they're not, they're not the, the, the hacks of the Sanhedrin. They are prominent these two very important men spent time, they spent money, they spent effort to bury Jesus Christ properly in a definite place. And you know what? Many would have noticed their involvement. As a matter of fact, I think their prominence is what kept people from bringing charges against them or harassing them. They were afraid of them because of their prominence. But they weren't trying to strike fear in people's hearts. They were trying to do the right thing for their Savior. So people would have noticed that bore a mighty witness to the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus, God's son, was dead and needed to be buried, and these two men volunteered to do it. And their affections for Jesus make the resurrection more believable and verifiable. I mean, the women saw where they put Jesus. See, some people will, guess, will say, oh, the women got lost and went to the wrong tomb, one that hadn't even been used yet, one that was in, happened to be empty. That's why they thought he had risen. Well, that's just silly. Joseph's tomb was very easy to find, and they were sitting there watching him be put in it. The women saw, and they would witness the risen Christ. Amen. You know, in the trials Jesus faced in the Sanhedrin, they were trying to get two witnesses, just two, just two people's testimony to agree to accuse Jesus of something. And they thought they almost had it with the whole temple tearing down and rebuilding in three days thing, and that didn't, that didn't work out either. But these two men provide some very reliable witnesses to the death and burial and eventually resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that illustrates the whole point is that God provided, God provided the witnesses to verify that his son was dead. Now, most of us, most of us like to, like to kind of question Joseph and Nicodemus. Why didn't y'all say something sooner? You might have prevented the death of the Son of God. 
Maybe they could have prevented it. Well, it wasn't supposed to be. Now, Nicodemus met with Jesus. He gained some understanding. Even in John chapter 7, Nicodemus tries to voice, hey, do we prosecute someone before we hear their testimony? But they've quieted him and shut him down. And we know that Joseph didn't consent to their plan, which the plan started in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, okay? This, This is not a plan in the last few days. Joseph of Arimathea had been fighting this and not agreeing with it since Mark chapter 3. It just wasn't recorded in our gospel. And these men could not stop how Jesus would be killed. That's one of the things we have to accept. God had planned it. God ordained it. God prophesied it, and it would happen the way God wanted it to happen. He had set that in motion. So they preserved their integrity. They preserved their integrity to be in a position to make sure the Messiah's body was properly buried. They may not even at that point realize exactly who Jesus was, but they still honored him, and they risked everything to bury him. So it, asks, it begs a question to us this morning, what have we risked? What have we risked for the gospel of Jesus Christ? What have we given up to follow the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What earthly treasures have we been willing to part with? Jesus took the punishment. We've been through this the last few weeks. The punishment, the judgment, the wrath of God came on him. Remember the darkness? Three hours, God's wrath is poured out on Jesus for our sins. Not his, ours. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus has called us to something. If you flip back a few pages to Mark chapter 8, I want you to remember the words of Jesus to his disciples and hence to us what it means to follow Christ. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? We can't buy our salvation. Christ bought it for us. He paid for it. We're very quick sometimes to risk our, our, our life for our governmental or civil rights. But what about eternity? You know, we sing that song, you, you are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. But sometimes we don't necessarily live it. We don't speak it or show it sometimes. You know, our civil rights, whether they be gun rights, voting rights, taxing rights, spending rights, or any other rights we think we have in our government, become a higher priority for them. We're willing to risk a lot of stuff for that. Our possessions, though, and our comforts, our safety and our health, they seem to be worth more to us than our spiritual health or the spiritual health of our family. I can tell you what God wants right now. What he wants is Men, to seek faithful service. To seek faithful service and leadership in the body of Christ. To be loving and training their children and their families to follow Christ. That's what God wants right now. It's, it's plain and obvious from Scripture. God wants all of us to risk our comforts, our passiveness, and to boldly approach anyone about the gospel. If we want to stop abortion... The gospel is the way. If we want to stop pornography, the gospel is the way. 
If we want to stop homosexuality, marital infidelity, divorce, all of those bad things that we get so appalled at and so angry about, the gospel is the way. And so telling people the gospel is the only way we're going to stop that. We can make a lot of votes. We can probably get a lot of candidates in there that are going to be pro-life and, 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 and pro-family and pro-religion. But if the gospel doesn't change hearts, these things won't go away. These two men traded all of their worldly prominence for eternal blessings and obedience. They denied themselves and took up their cross in the form of burying the Savior. And the question for us this morning is, will we? Will we deny ourselves and take up our cross? So prominent men buried our Lord. God provided two very good witnesses to the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he had used an evil governor to make sure Jesus was dead. The prefect, another fancy name for the governor, verifies Jesus' death. Mark 15, 44 through 45. I'm going to read that again, right in the middle of the passage. Pilate was surprised that he, Jesus, was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. So Pilate is a little bit surprised, and we're going to talk about how come he's surprised in a minute. But in John, if you want to flip back to John 19, we're going to look at that again. In 31 through 35, John records this particular point in the whole thing. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. It was the Passover. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken, and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the one on the other, on the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since he, they saw he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. So there's a couple of events going on here. Um, Pilate obviously is going to give them their bodies because he's going to oblige their complaint about leaving the bodies on the cross for the Sabbath. He wants to make peace, and we've already seen how he does that with Barabbas. So he's always about the, you know, making peace for his benefit. So when Joseph asked for the body from Pilate, he was a little bit amazed that Jesus was already dead, because crucifixion usually lasts days. So Pilate figured he was going to have to break their legs, and, and, and they all suffocate, basically. But Jesus' heart was broken. The water and blood separation is a, a medical condition that happens when the heart muscles just completely fail. Jesus died of a broken heart, and his flesh was just wasted away from enduring the wrath of God. So I want you to understand how these events take place to kind of understand what, what God's orchestrating, because he's orchestrating a beautiful thing. Before dark was over, before the darkness had lifted, or maybe right at the edge, the, the Sanhedrin guys, the chief priests and all, they went to Pilate to ask him about breaking the legs. So they, and, the, and the Antonio Fortress is only about 1,000 feet from Golgotha, so it's close. So they go over there to ask, hey, will you break the legs? We don't want them on the cross overnight. So, they, so Pilate says, okay, and tells them to go tell the centurion to break their legs. Well, while they're gone, Jesus dies. Joseph of Arimathea is probably standing there watching his Savior die. And he goes to Pilate, and they probably pass somewhere 
the message is passed, and Joseph goes to Pilate and says, hey, can I have his body? And he's like, is he dead already? I just sent the order to break their legs. Calls the centurion. Well, by this point, the centurion has ordered both legs broken, and then he's ordered the guy to poke him in the side, Jesus in the side, to make sure he's dead. So the centurion comes and says, yep, Jesus is dead. So Pilate has confirmed this, but it all happens in a really close, perfect timing. I mean, this is about three in the afternoon. They have about three, maybe two and a half to three hours to get him buried before darkness sets to, to not violate the Sabbath. So that's what's going on. I mean, it's just like, I mean, one, one, one misstep and it would have uh, kind of unraveled. But the important part about this is that prior to death, Jesus' death, Prior to them breaking the legs of the two guys on the side, Jesus had died. And the Passover lamb's bones were not broken. Now that's important because that is a prophecy from Psalms 3420 and Exodus 1246. The bones of the Passover lamb in Exodus 1246 that they used to cover their doors so the death angel would pass over, the bone was not to be broken. And when, they, when God instituted this as a regular once-a-year feast, The Passover lamb's bones were never to be broken. But in Psalms 34, David goes, and neither is the Son of God, the Lamb of God's bones, supposed to be broken. So that's how how close it came to Jesus' bones being broken, which would have violated the prophecy. And also, when the centurion confirmed the death, he fulfilled a prophecy. Prophecies in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. And in Zechariah 12, 10, it says, we will look on him who was pierced. So by sticking a spear in Jesus' side to confirm death, confirming death, which is what we needed, confirm death, not that this, I, oh, Jesus fainted thing. We needed to confirm death. All of this took place to fulfill all the intricate prophecies about the Messiah, the Savior, the Passover lamb. Pilate didn't just validate Jesus' death, death. He also unwittingly fulfilled all these prophecies and the testimony of God's salvation from the Old Testament all the way into the New. The brutality of Pilate really lends itself to the credibility of the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, came, lived, and died and was buried And he rose for the forgiveness of our sins. It is a historical fact. It's not something you can disprove. Nobody can disprove it. If someone comes at you with any kind of theory, it's already been disproved. Just tell them to go Google it. They'll find out that it's not there, that it's been disproved. Most competent and unagenda scholars will accept this. Believe it, though. Because that's how we get forgiveness. Believe it. You know, there was a stone found in in Caesarea Maritima that kind of confirmed Pilate's position as prefect over Palestine during this time. For a long time, there was this wondering, when did he actually take over? It wasn't in any records. When when did he actually take it over? And there's a stone, and you can see a picture online of it, and it just says, Pilate the prefect of Palestine or Judea. And so... That confirms it. Well, just like that confirms Pilate's position, the Word of God confirms that Jesus Christ, his son, died and was buried for our sins. See, all these events certify the most historically significant event in human history. There has been nothing that has changed the trajectory of humanity more than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, nothing. You can't printing press, automobiles, internet, you can name it all, but it has not had the same impact over the centuries that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ had. So why don't people believe it? Why don't people believe that Jesus died to give them forgiveness? The same reason Pilate didn't believe it and Herod didn't believe it and Judas didn't believe it. They don't believe they need forgiveness. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line. They really don't believe they need any kind of forgiveness from God. Now, most people admit they do wrong things, but that's a wrong breaking men's laws, and so they don't, they, don't see any way to, they don't see any reason to hold them accountable for every little detail. I mean, people, they get away with cheating on their taxes. They think they've done something successful. They've done nothing but break the law. But he, they don't want anybody to hold them accountable, and that's what forgiveness does. It holds us accountable. You have to be accountable for your sins to get forgiveness. See, they still believe Satan's lies. Oh, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not really that bad. I'm good enough. God, God doesn't require perfect. All those lies, they're from Satan. They started in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? He asked Eve, did God really say? And they're still listening to those lies. And that's why they won't believe. They don't think they need forgiveness. And it's sad. Because one day our eyes will close for the last time. A burial will happen for us. What will be our final need when that happens? What will be the last thing we need before that? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. It's the one thing you can't give yourself. You can't get it and give it yourself. You may can forgive yourself about certain things, but you got to go to God to get real forgiveness, eternal forgiveness. Forgiveness must come from the one we have sinned against. And the only way to get it is through Jesus Christ. You know, the sad part is that God really wants to give everyone forgiveness. He really does. But society wants nothing of God's forgiveness. They want to believe the lies so they can live the way they want to live and not acknowledge God. And God allowed his son to be crucified for all sin. God condemned his son to his wrath against sin. Therefore, God gets to determine who's righteous and how they get righteous. And he does so by faith alone, in Christ alone, in the grace of our, his son. He grants forgiveness and eternal life by that wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. We sing that story. Hopefully we can tell that story. Hopefully that's real in your heart. Jesus gave us access to eternal forgiveness and heaven as our final home. I hope you have those. If you don't, come talk to me afterwards. And as Jesus said in Mark 1.15, he said, repent and believe in the good news. Forgiveness is found there and there alone. Nothing else. Nowhere else. So God uses these two strategies of a prominent man and a prefect to certify his son, the death of his son and his burial. And now the Sanhedrin actually helps the cause too. We're going to go over to Matthew now, Matthew 27. This account is something Matthew adds to the whole burial account. But the Sanhedrin gets involved. The chief priests get involved in really what they think of is they're trying to ensure nobody tricks them. But let me read this from Matthew 27, 62 to 66. 
The next day, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. You have a guard of soldiers, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and guarding and, and placing the guard. So these guys are going to prevent, they're not going to let the wool be pulled over their eyes. They're going to prevent a false resurrection, a fake resurrection. They're going to try to prevent this hoax or this trick. So they went to Pilate. They asked for some security. They asked to be able to seal the tomb. They tried to prevent the resurrection. But in their attempt to prevent the resurrection, they actually provided two witnesses to confirm the resurrection. Those two guards. You know they didn't keep a secret forever. No, no amount of money would help anybody keep a secret forever. You see it every day in the news. Someone finds out something that happened long ago. These two guards wouldn't keep that secret and, and, and wouldn't let the lie be published forever. The lie that the Jews never believed that Jesus' body was stolen. Nobody believed that. So their attempt to thwart Christ's resurrection turned actually into a validation of Christ's resurrection. They could not keep Jesus in the tomb. All these religious hypocrites did was preserve the truth. They guarded the truth by putting these, these Roman witnesses, not, not Jewish witnesses, but, but Roman witnesses, people they couldn't even threaten. Rome guarded the truth that night. It's, it's, it's crazy. How many times have we, we used things to try to prevent something from happening, like prenuptial agreements or, or insurance or safety devices, and a lot of times they don't work. That's exactly what these men were doing. But God's word will never fail. His truth will prevail no matter what, because it is eternal. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God lives forever, stands forever. God preserves two things forever, his word and our souls. That's the only two things that last forever, the word of God and the souls of men. We need to remember that. Because denying the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ never ever disproves it. Just denying it, just acting like it didn't happen, that doesn't disprove it. God was clear, and he also said some will not believe. Some will not believe. But you don't have to be one of them. You've heard the truth. You can accept the testimony you've heard today of, of, of this book, of these men, of these accounts, also the testimony of the witnesses who are sitting here right now who have believed that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. You have that in the room with you. Life is not forever. We all know that. Our next breath is not guaranteed. But our eternal home can be by faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Son of God today for the forgiveness of your sin. Yes, we all sin. I know it's maybe news to some of you, but we all sin. We all break God's laws. And he just asks us to admit it and ask for forgiveness. Because he sent Jesus to give us that forgiveness. 
So as I sum this up, God buried his son and he used some very interesting strategies to make sure it happened according to his word. And also so that it would be verifiable. And by this, by these, we know that Jesus Christ died for our sins. You know, this week we, uh, we watched a community bury a young man who gave his life serving our country 81 years ago, Keith Tipsford. I mean, it was, a, it, was, it was sad, but it was almost joyous, too. There's a lot of peace, I think, that for the family. So we honored his memory. We declared our appreciation for his service. We did. And it was beautiful. We showed love to his family, and that was the right thing to do. You know, he didn't even know who his enemy was when he died. He probably didn't even know what was hit, hitting in Pearl, going on in Pearl Harbor. But you know what? We do. We know who our enemy is. We know it's sin, the curse of sin and death, the adversary, Satan, the devil. He's our enemy. And Jesus died to defeat him and sin. His death, burial, and resurrection happened just the way God said it would. And these three events we talked about in this burial prove it. Their faith in a dead man eventually saved their souls and when, when he arose three days later, these two men, they, they got redeemed by the blood of the Lamb when he rose three days later. They, their faith probably took flight at that point. Faith in Jesus alone is what separates those who are forgiven from those who are not. Do you want to have that faith? Well, let's take some time to ask God for it now. Let's take some time of prayer to pray for this faith in our lives, to risk our lives, to risk our comforts, our conveniences for Christ if we need to. We'll have some time of pastoral prayer, a moment of silent prayer, and then I'll close this after that. So let's pray.